I can start. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3, going into chapter 4, as we continue our Glory of the Lord sermon series. So starting at verse 16, if you have your bulletin outline, it's in there, or turn in your Bibles. Go and gather the elders of Israel together. This is God speaking to Moses. Say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will not let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And now the first nine verses of chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous with snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord God, give us understanding. Illuminate our hearts and our minds as we think through Talk through this scripture. It's long. There's a lot in there. But show us what you did in the days of Moses, what you did in the days of Jesus, and what you're doing today. In Jesus' name, amen. When I'm 80 years old, I'm already planning ahead. 
I know some people think the way I drive and play sports, I'm probably not going to make it, but I'm planning on it. And I hope by then I can just sit around in a recliner and drink a lot of coffee, eat a lot of chocolate, bounce my great-grandchildren on my knee. Looking forward to that. I was reminded at uh, the Round Hill Diner yesterday, I want to be just like those old guys that sit at breakfast for hours and talk sports and politics and grumble about the younger generation that has it so easy. Can't wait for that. I want to go on long walks on weekdays while everyone else is at work. I want to sit and listen to my finger-style guitar CDs or MP3s or whatever we're using at that point and just enjoy it. I want to stay up late watching old movies and then sleep through my doctor's appointments the next morning. I want to listen to young guys preach and run churches with all that energy and I just want to laugh when they mess up because I made all those mistakes myself. My wife tells me that I will be helping her garden by then in our retirement. I'll believe that when I see it. And hopefully I'll still be able to play golf and that I won't really care about the score, so I might even enjoy it. I don't know if you've thought about what you want to do when you're that age, retirement age. I'll tell you what I don't want to be doing when I'm 80. I definitely don't want to be wandering around in a desert for 40 years with a bunch of malcontents, taking them to this great destination that I'll never see because I'll die first. Uh, as much as I would like to continue helping people all through my life, I'm probably going to pass if someone asks me to go petition and argue with some government that they release their slaves. Especially if I know that, uh, that following that is just going to be miserable and that those slaves are just going to have to go battle other nations before they get to their final place. No thanks. Give me my recliner back and send someone else. But this is the situation that Moses found himself in when he was 80 years old. If you haven't been around for the Exodus series, um, the passage that we're about to read is in the middle, or I just read, uh, it's in the middle of a longer dialogue between God and Moses. We call it the burning bush dialogue, right? God appears to Moses when he's in Midian and calls him. And the Lord is bringing the suffering of the Hebrews in their slavery to an end. And he's decided that Moses needs to leave Midian where he's found a home, found a family, and he needs to go back to Egypt where he grew up because he's going to be the man that will make this deliverance happen. And as we've seen the last couple of weeks, Moses has already kind of balked at that idea. Uh, me? How? Why? How? And, and God just says, trust me, I'll be with you, and I'm powerful enough to make this happen. But as we'll see, Moses still has reservations. So God's talking him through this, his call on Moses' life. So the first five verses of our passage, God spells out what's going to happen over the next nine chapters of Exodus. Now, he doesn't tell Moses all the details, but he has given him the game plan. 
the game, the plan for what he's going to accomplish. Let's read those verses again. Chapter 3, 16 through 22. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. So God sent Moses first to the elders of Israel. This is the first time the elders are mentioned in the Bible. At some point, apparently, they had developed a system of oversight so that each family or tribe would have a representative, spokesman. And, and Moses could win over all the people by winning over the elders. And so if you saw, you look carefully at what he talks to them about. First, he reminds them of the past and who it is that's calling the God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he reminds them of their present that God has seen their afflictions and is working to deliver them. And then God reminds them of their future, that you are headed for a rich new land that I have promised. So after winning over the elders, Moses is then supposed to ask Pharaoh for a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship and sacrifice now, at first, this sounds like a flat-out lie. Is, that, is this just designed to give the Hebrews a head start and making a break for freedom? I think it seems more likely that God is giving Pharaoh an easy first step. Rather than starting with the huge request of, okay, just let them all go, give them, give them a day, a couple days to go sacrifice and worship. After the fourth plague of flies, which we'll read about in Exodus 8, Pharaoh does give permission for the people to go out on this journey to sacrifice. But he asks Moses to intercede and stop the flies, and as soon as the flies go away, Pharaoh changes his mind. It doesn't happen. So Pharaoh needs a lot of convincing, and God is prepared to do whatever it takes to convince him. The ten plagues are neatly summarized in verse 20 as, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. 
God will strike Pharaoh in Egypt in the same way that they have been striking the Hebrew slaves. Ligon Duncan said there are many Egyptian, ancient Egyptian texts that speak about Pharaoh's strong arm against his enemies. So in a tongue-in-cheek way, the God of Israel, by his strong arm, is going to strong-arm Pharaoh, who thinks he has a strong arm, into releasing the children of Israel. And so finally, God gives instructions for the plundering of Egypt. Right? Somehow, the Egyptian people will be looking upon the Hebrews with favor so that they'll just have to ask, either out of pity or guilt or some sense that the Hebrews were owed greatly for their many years of service, just God's favor. What a beautiful provision from God that not only did he give them their freedom, but that he provided so richly from their enemies. Right? They need clothing in the desert, so they get it. What, what about the jewelry? What do you need silver and gold in the, in the wilderness for? Well, that's provision for later when God asks them to build the tabernacle. And unfortunately, also when they build the golden calf, right? The idol. So God's plan here is revealed to Moses. He, he, sees, he tells him how the future is going to unfold all the way to their being released and given wealth, but it's almost like Moses hasn't really heard the whole thing because he's, he's kind of stuck back at the beginning with an objection. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, the objection that Moses brings. Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to me, to you. Now, it's a given that Pharaoh won't listen to Moses and won't believe in his God. It's the Hebrews and the elders who, their unbelief is what Moses is really worried about, right? This is directed at them. Lord, what if they just flat out don't believe me? This is probably a legitimate concern for Moses, but kind of feels like a smokescreen too, right? One more weak excuse to not have to obey. God's already told him, the elders will listen to you. Well, this is the third of five objections that Moses has throughout this dialogue. All right, we've already kind of had, who am I to do this? And then there's sort of the, well, who are you? Give me your name so I can prove it. Now it's, what if they don't believe me? In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about the other objections that hey, I'm not so good at this talking stuff. And then finally, Moses just bluntly pleads, just send someone else. What are your excuses when you know that God wants you to do something? We can't get past this without asking that of ourselves. Me, Lord, really? I don't have the time. I don't have the training I'm sure that there's someone else that would be so much better. We have a lot of excuses usually lined up. Now, few of us will hear God audibly, right? We're not going to be going about our daily task and see a burning bush and be called in quite the way that Moses is. But we know his will. 
We know what he calls us to. You read your scriptures, you come to things like Colossians 3, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Or Matthew 5, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Wow, Lord, do you need me to forgive and be gentle to people who want to hurt me? Not so good at that. I don't appreciate people walking over me. Maybe those are instructions for somebody else. Let's explain that away. And then we have the really big ones, like what Greg read, that go and make disciples. You got some good excuses. Maybe you sense on a smaller level that the Lord places people in your path, in your life to speak the gospel to, and you hesitate with all kinds of excuses why it's not the right time, or they probably won't listen to you, and you won't even have the right words anyways. I mean, that happens to me pretty much every time I get on a plane and sit down by someone I don't know. I have this internal dialogue. I should talk to them, but then I can't watch Sports Center if I'm on JetBlue, and I have to put down my book, and it's going to be awkward, and they don't want to talk to a pastor, and just going through it making up the excuses. We're all like Moses, aren't we? We're all ready to pass the buck, argue with the Lord why we're not the right person for the job, why we won't sign up to run the fall festival. Sorry. Sometimes we're intimidated. Sometimes we're just lazy. Sometimes it's both. But more often than not, the Lord is calling us to action, to step out in faith, to speak His truth and show His love. I think the whole time God is reminding us, I'm with you. My presence is enough. I'm going to be the power that you go in. You won't go in your own strength. You go in mine. You may fail. You may succeed. But either way, I'm looking for your obedience that's a reflection of how much you trust me and how big you think I am. So Moses has this question, this objection, and and God doesn't lose his patience. He simply gives him proof. A few ways to show that he's been called. So let's go back to chapter 4, 2 through 9. The Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. 
My favorite detail in that part is that Moses is scared of the serpent and runs away because I know I would be. I think my wife would have run and kept running. Definitely wouldn't have grabbed the tail when God said, grab it. I think it reminds the reader that Moses wasn't a magician. This is, he's never seen this happen before. He's a little freaked out. Now, the text doesn't spell all this out, but it seems like these signs communicate powerful things and symbolize Egypt's lack of power before the Lord. Snakes were revered symbols in ancient Egypt, right? Pharaoh's headdress, you think. I'm sure you've seen pictures that they had the serpent on it, symbolizing both protection from the gods and his power over his people. So the fact that the staff becomes a serpent that Moses runs from, we see a picture of his initial fear of Egypt. But with God's power, Moses will be able to overcome Egypt's power. The leprous hand could symbolize that Moses is a polluted, imperfect vessel to be used by God, as we all are, but that God will purify and cleanse him. He'll use him anyways. Or, more likely, it could just even foreshadow the plagues that God is going to send onto the land, to Egypt, bring disease and pain. Leprosy, as we see in other places in the Old Testament, is sometimes a punishment for arrogance before God. Just ask Miriam, Moses' sister, or Uzziah, the king in Second Chronicles. And last, the, the Nile was the source of life and water for the Egyptian people. And if the water turns to blood, all the fish die, no one can get water, all of which would probably make the Egyptians leave if the plague stayed with just that simple act of tainting the water, God could completely bring Egypt to its knees. So, do these signs work? Well, as we're going to see when we preach on them in later chapters, they work like all signs from the Lord work. God's people believe and God's enemies deny them. Exodus 4, 29-31 says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So the signs convince the elders and the Hebrew people, but not so much Pharaoh and his court. When Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh in Exodus 7, they cast the staff down, it becomes a serpent, but then Pharaoh's magicians are able to do something similar. So Pharaoh doesn't listen. The plagues start, and the first one is the Nile turning to blood. Pharaoh denies that as well. He's unconvinced. Now Jesus had the same sort of problem that Moses had when he was ministering on earth. People had a hard time believing that he was really sent from God. 
So he healed people a lot. And he walked on water. And he did wonders and signs. Raised people from the dead. Turned water into wine. All to prove that he had been sent by God and that he was truly God in the flesh. God, Jesus used signs in his ministry to confirm his word, to authenticate his role as the Messiah, and to teach people about the nature and power of God. Listen to some of the things that he told people. In John 4, 48, says, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And in John 10, If I am not doing the works of my Father then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works, that they, you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Matthew chapter 11, we read about an interesting encounter that Jesus had. Verses 2 through 5, Now when John heard in prison, John the Baptist in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go, tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And even John Jesus' cousin, who had baptized him and preached about him, doubted and needed to know, are you really the Christ sent from God? And Jesus replies, essentially, look at the signs. They should tell you everything you need to know. And of course, the ultimate sign that Jesus was who he said he was, He called the sign of Jonah that he would be in the tomb for three days. Then he would come out. The empty tomb is the sign that Jesus was truly from God. Death itself could not defeat the Son of God. And it validated everything he said about being God and predicting that he would rise from the dead. Now, I have a theory, and just as I'm looking at these signs and how they relate to Jesus, um, I'm going to use a little poetic license, a little preacherly imagination. Because it just struck me as I was thinking about the correlation between Moses and Jesus, and, and specifically these signs. What do we think about when we think about a serpent and Jesus? Well, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first uh, announcing of the gospel, uh, the prediction that the seed of the woman, Jesus, would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. That's what I see in the serpent. Leprosy, the second sign. We should all remember the many times that Jesus healed lepers and kind of symbolic of all the healing and cleansing that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. And third, changing water into blood. Well, Jesus kind of did that too. Jesus turned water to wine. What's our, how do we use wine as a symbol of his blood? 
And I see the cleansing blood that covers our sin. So, so how is this significant? Well, Jesus triumphs over the serpent, Satan, and all evil spiritual forces. And he triumphs over the physical world and the corruption of the fall. And he triumphs over sin itself with his blood. Jesus defeats the world, the flesh, and the devil for us. There's a song by Cademan's Call that I remember Emily Rist singing many years ago here. Some of the words, uh, it's called Shifting Sand. And it, the words go, I begged you for some proof for my Thomas eyes to see a slithering staff, a leprous hand, and lions resting lazily. And it goes on, and the chorus says, My faith is like shifting sand, changed by every wave. My faith is like shifting sand, so I'll stand on grace. God's signs are for all people. Unbelievers deny them. Believers accept them, but we still doubt and we still maybe cry out for signs. But God has given us all the proof we need. And we should stop demanding signs and, and God's validation and pray, acknowledging, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. What about you? What are the signs in your life that you are Loved and called by God. How do people know that you are one of His? Probably won't be given the ability to do fancy tricks like turning a staff into a serpent. But Christians have signs in their lives. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, when the Spirit is inside you, here's what should come out of you. That fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then James, chapter 1, 22, and 2, 17, and 18 should be there in your outline. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone says, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. And then John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another changed lives, changed desires, obedience in action, and love. There's many more. That's a good start. None of us is going to do those things perfectly. We are, even as believers, justified and still sinners. So we will fall far short. But when you show those things... When you have those signs for the world, for other believers, 
you'll be showing that you are His. That you have been saved, justified, and sanctified, called by our great God out of darkness into light. Amen. Let's take a few moments to pray silently. And then I'll close this in prayer. Jesus was willing to come and to give up his life as a ransom for many. Thank you that not only are we released from bondage into freedom, but we're given great treasures and inheritance of the riches that are found in you. Just as the Hebrew women received the riches of Egypt on their way out. And thank you that you worked in Moses' life, calling him, reassuring him that his mission would be successful because you were with him and that he was going in your power. Thank you that he promised us those same things as we obey you, as we live our lives called by you. Thank you that you are sovereign over every earthly power and that you will work your plans no matter who is in charge. 